Our podcast, the Kosher Sommelier Podcast, is sponsored by Liquid Kosher. Liquid Kosher is a curated wine experience for those seeking quality kosher wines that are vetted by wine experts. That wine expert being me. We have relationships with family-owned wine producers around the world, our partner winemakers, and we are sourcing excellent wines that come direct to consumer through our website. The best and the most exciting feature of Liquid Kosher is our Cellar Wine Club, which is a quarterly subscription that opens the door to rare and limited production, limited allocation wines. Join us, join the club, get a club box. We will feature some of the world's most exciting and interesting kosher wines that are produced only by family-owned wineries that are really punching above their weight. So I invite you personally to come and enjoy the Liquid Kosher selection and the Cellar Wine Club. Liquidkosher.com. Please check us out. This is the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. I'm Andrew Breskin, the Kosher Sommelier. Each show, we will discover some of the amazing stories and personalities in the world of wine. Wine tasting, wine making, fine dining, and one of my favorite subjects, the wine business. So pour yourself a glass and enjoy the conversation. In this episode, we have my good friend, Alan Berger, who is the owner of the Grand Getaways Passover program in Orlando, Florida. I thought it was really cool to get an inside take of the behind the scenes of a Passover program, which is a massive, massive production that many people hear about and few will ever experience, uh, and even fewer will experience from the inside looking out. Really an eye-opening experience, and I think that you know if you ever do get to go on one of these programs, it'll increase your appreciation for all the effort and thoughtfulness that goes in behind the scenes. And if not, then I can only imagine it would leave you hoping and wishing that you ever get the chance to do it. It's really an amazing, amazing production. Maybe it's not for everybody, but I still think that everyone can appreciate from a business side, from a personal side, all the work and effort and coordination that goes into this kind of a production that literally takes years and years and years of work to execute and plan. So I hope you enjoy the exposure of understanding one of these programs from the inside out and also from one of the best people in the industry to ever do it. Welcome. And I'm very excited about our guest today, my good friend, Al Berger. And some people have Passover and their goal is to see Elijah come to the Seder. And some people have Passover and their goal is to see Al Berger at their Seder. And if you have Passover and you see Al Berger at your Seder, then you know you are doing Passover right because you are at his fantastic program, Grand Gateways, which is unparalleled in the Passover scene. And after getting to know Al super well over the last year and working together, I thought it would be really awesome to get a little bit of a behind-the-scenes take on the Passover scene. It is probably the biggest wine event of the year in terms of kosher wine. It is also one of the biggest, I don't know, Jewish calendar events or Jewish experiences that is relatable across all levels of observance and community and family and whatever else. And um, you're right there in the middle of it. It's a huge thing. So thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I kind of wanted to know, I guess I don't even know the answer myself, which is cool for me to find out, but you're currently running the Grand Getaways program in Orlando. But before you 
became the king of Passover, like what were you doing to get to this point? Um, in life, um, I spent time in um, many uh, facets of sales. I was a salesman. I worked in the garment industry for many years and uh, then in other businesses. Like most people, when the internet started, we tried to make a billion dollars in the in an internet business. Um, it was cool technology, but it didn't happen. Um, and while doing different, you know, uh, jobs, I uh, had a friend who was in the Passover business, and I've been doing Passover um, not on my own, but for others, I've been involved in Passover programs for about twenty-five, almost thirty years. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me old. Um, but uh, I started as a you know young guy hosting for other people at Passover programs. I didn't work the business all year round. I would just show up basically as a hired gun, and I would you know be a host and walk around and schmooze with people, and you know that's where I really learned the business. And it started a long time ago at the at many of the famous properties that have been had been doing Pesach for many years, the Fountain Blue in Miami, um, and uh, which was super cool, um, and one of the great programs back in the day. They of course stopped doing Passover, and then the Eden Rock and different hotels along the way. But really, where I got my start in the Passover business um, after you know was at the uh, JW Marriott in Arizona which um, in Phoenix, Arizona, which was a, an incredible program, an incredible property. Um, and I worked with uh, an incredible guy named Yogi Tversky, who many people, if they were listening to this and know Passover at all, um, he was one of my very, 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 very close friends. And I used to basically host for him at that JW Marriott. And I did that for about five or six years. Hosting means like you're the face of the program, guest relations, uh, making sure everyone's Correct. happy. You walk around, you listen to their complaints, you try and fix their uh, problems, you know, and you smile at them a lot and uh, make them feel like they're the only person in the building. Because as most will know, people on Passover programs, they are the only person in the building. So uh, you have to, um, you know, treat everybody as if, you know, they're on their own private Passover program. So that was what I would do. And um, then in uh, 2010, I had an opportunity through my friend to uh, take on a contract at the Waldorf Astoria in Orlando, which was just finishing construction, was a bit brand new property. And they just couldn't handle another Passover program. So I had the opportunity and that's how I started at Grand Getaways and created my own uh, Passover program. 13 years later, we're still there. Was your plan the whole time to have your own program or everything kind of lined up and you're like, I'm going for it? Uh, yeah, my plan was not to have my own program. I was working um, in other in another business, in a, a real estate asset business, and um, this sort of just came my way, so I decided to go for it. It was a very interesting um, experience, challenging. You know, people ask about... Um, Starting a Passover program, I think it's a great idea um, if you can do it. 
but it's a, you know, like any other business in this world, it takes a significant investment and uh, it doesn't happen in one year. You do not start a Passover program and suddenly just start making tons of money. It always goes back to the uh, individual, you know, in the back of a synagogue who, you know, isn't so into praying. So he stands in the back and he schmoozes with his friends and counts how much money, you know, you're making. And he's figured out already in the Passover business that, you know, if you have a thousand people for Passover and they're each spending $5,000, you've got $5 million, you're spending $3 million, you're making $2 million. It's a very simple <laughs> formula. It works for everybody. You know, <laughs> everyone's, so, um, a, everyone's an accountant on Passover, right? Yes. And they've all got it all figured out. They know all of your expenses. They know all of, of the costs involved and they know exactly how much you're charging everybody. And they, they've, they've got the answer. Um, unfortunately, the reality is, is that it's a business like any other business and, you know, there are margins involved and there are profits and there are losses and, you know, like in any business, some years they are good and some years they are more challenging. Um, and the Passover business is a high risk business because of the unknowns that come flying at you, you know, over the course of 13 years. Need I mention the... You know, the word that comes up, COVID um, or Zika virus, which showed up one year, there are always different challenges that arise that, you know, make it um, certainly challenging. So that's so interesting about Zika. So you were um, that was what, like six, seven years ago. So you were dealing with this kind of a health issue. Sure. Before anybody else, really. Well, I mean, you know, it's families. Passover, for the most part, is families. It's an opportunity for families to get together. You know, within families are the matriarchs and patriarchs of the families. And then you go into the, um, you know, the next generations and the the children or grandchildren who are giving birth to uh, grandbabies or great-grandbabies, as the case may be. And then Zika virus pops up and suddenly you're, you know, in a situation where you've got uh, you know, I'm not taking my baby there because there are mosquitoes in Orlando or, you know, there are 22 cases of Zika in Orlando and then the whole family doesn't want to come. So you're dealing with those types of challenges. Yeah. Um, fortunately, within every um, pandemic or any type of thing like that, there are people who are concerned about it. And then there are people who are not so concerned about it. And you hope and pray for the people who are not so concerned about it to be willing to go away for Passover. But you know, it's a business. So when these things hit, you know, you have the opportunity to, you're taking big risk and are you going to be profitable? Are you not going to be profitable? Because ultimately when you run a Passover business, you're buying everything in advance. You're getting wine from Andrew Breskin months before Pesach. You're getting, you know, food has to be ordered. Everything has to be in place. Staff has to be hired. You know, this doesn't happen overnight. People ask me, and I often think it's funny, you know, so you work 10 days a year. What do you do the rest of the year? Yeah, well, I can tell people that on the last night of Passover, when the holiday was over, there was already a, a desk at Grand Getaways taking reservations for next year. So literally, um, you know, Passover 2023 started before Passover 2022 was even over. Thank God. Um, I mean, and that's what we that's, hope for. That's an understatement. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I don't I mean, I think that it's worth describing because, you know, We've been fortunate to have, you know, I guess, more experience on Passover programs than than most people. Um, 
but I think it's worth describing. And I, I know you've described it as a, as a cruise that never leaves um, the shore. But yeah, that's not my quote, by the way, just for the record, because, you know, as this goes online and, and makes its way to millions and millions and millions of people, um, that was quoted by a gentleman named Simon Auerbacher from Ram Caterers, who's a fantastic caterer and does an incredible job. Um, and I was once at a meeting with him and he described it as a cruise that never leaves port. And it is a brilliant fantastic. description of what a passenger. Yeah, no, I think I think it is. is. I, but just to give people the idea of the scale, I mean, we're talking about. I mean, specifically, the Waldorf is a is a massive property, but we're talking about a thousand um, Jewish people on a property in one hotel that are being fed constantly, literally from you know seven a.m. until you know eleven or twelve at night. Um, constantly being catered to, um, activities around the clock that are all unique and, and nothing repetitive, um, and religious needs and childcare and other forms of, um, of amusement and very sort of uh, elaborate over-the-top entertainment. I mean, it's this is a full-on production that you know, you couldn't do in a few months and you couldn't do without even having a very clear vision and a staff with a very clear vision. I mean, this is a massive, massive undertaking and logistically and um, expensive. It's it's a huge thing. Um, so just to give a scale and, and, and the, the, the dozens of kitchen staff and trucks and um the coming and going i mean it, it's it's like a you're running like a like a hotel you're running the hotel yeah and you're managing the guests of the i mean usually when the hotel is is in business the hotel makes sure the beds are clean make sure the food is fresh etc cetera, etc cetera. but at the same time you're babysitting the guests of the hotel as well in addition to feeding them and and whatever so this is a full on thing what what is the difference between a successful program and a not successful program in terms of managing all these crazy amounts of logistics? Well, it, you know, Passover is a team, Andrew. It's a team effort. And, you know, within everything that you described, there are teammates that are fulfilling all of these different, you know, activities that you speak about and food that you speak about. You know, there's an incredible gentleman named Gary Rubin, who, although he's not my um, quote unquote partner in this business, he is my partner in this business. And another one named Pablo Scalani, who, you know, these are all people who have been in the catering and setup and planning world um, for decades with incredible experience. And you bring in talented people, talented chefs. Um, you know, my executive meat chef was the executive sous chef at the Grand Hyatt on 42nd Street, where they do parties of 3,000 three times a day, every day for 300 days in a row. You know, these are people who it, it's an art form as to how to execute this at a certain level. And it's certainly not one that, that I am, you know, crazy enough to say to you that I'm doing this, you know, on my own. There are people in play that have specific talents, whether it's being able to purchase food 
for a thousand people for 10 days in the proper quantities or being able to prepare 800 prime ribs on a given night for, you know, or a thousand prime ribs, whatever the number is to produce or to set up those rooms and buffets and different setups, tea rooms and everything that you're talking about, you know, there's a massive staff involved. It takes hundreds of people and it takes a hotel like the Waldorf Astoria, who together with me has gone through the learning curve of how to get this done and executed at a really high level. So, you know, one of the concerns that people often have when they're going on a Passover program is they're researching all these programs and they're researching all the prices of these programs and how much things cost. And, you know, uh, well, this one's, you know, $15,000 for a room. The other one's $10,000 for a room. In life, I think it's safe to say that you get what you pay for. That's for sure. I think that's true about a bottle of wine also. You buy a $10 bottle of wine, you're getting one thing. Buy a $100 bottle of wine, you're certainly getting another thing, correct? I would tend to agree, especially when you're pouring it into your French roast. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, these are all all like, you know, but in the Passover business, it's really, it's a huge team effort of people that come and execute it, whether it's, you know, the person running my day camp. Um, or the person who helps me organize everything and runs my programming and does all of the rooming. You've got, you know, families coming with multiple rooms and they all want to be on the same floor. And they, you know, these are all, and you're talking about a hotel where it's not like every room is lined up. It's a puzzle and someone has to know that puzzle and be able to play with it. There are tremendous, you know, parts to this operation that need to come together. And again, as I mentioned, you know, having a partner like the Waldorf Astoria, along with all of these other individuals, you know, a, a Robin Hartman who's been working with me for many, many years, who knows the ins and outs of everything in that hotel as plus, 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 because she's an amazing individual. But, you know, having these these people with you are what makes the program great. I smile. That's what I do. But- <laughs> Ultimately, there's, you know, an, uh, you know, a brain trust behind this that makes it happen at the level that we try to make it happen. So there's every year there's a horror story of, um, <clears throat> I mean, at least several of people who go to hotels or go to programs and they realize that uh, there's, oh, there is no meal service three times a day or, oh, there is no child care. Oh, oh, they don't have a room for me. Or, you know, there's a, uh, <laughs> they sold yeah, me a villa back, that doesn't. get what you pay for, Andrew, you know. Yeah. I. What is it about, and this is maybe, I, I don't want to say why do so many programs fail because I think that, you know, you answer the question, people don't create a team, people don't, um, think big picture. So that's probably the answer, but what is the temptation if you can explain it for people to, uh, over promise and then basically steal and, and ruin someone's Passover. Like what is it about Passover that brings out these people to, uh, poison the whole industry? Yeah. I don't think there's any difference between those people and any other business where people go into a business and are, just inherently either poor businessmen or scammers? I don't know the answer to the question. I I try not to get involved in other people's Passover programs um, and other people's, but ultimately it's probably 
a guy who's standing in the back of shul, as we discussed before, in the back of the synagogue, who's saying to, you know, you got a thousand people, five thousand dollars a person, five million dollars, two million dollars in three million in expenses, you're making two million dollars. And they think they're gonna walk in and make two million dollars. Fact is, is that there's a huge investment involved in a in a business like this. And it takes many years to work through that, no different than your own business. And um, these people think that they're going to come in and just, you know, everything's going to be super duper easy. The fact is, is that there was a learning curve for me. And there's a learning curve in every business that you go into until you figure it out and you get really good at it. And the people that you're working with get really good at it. It's a challenge. And these people walk in and think it's just going to happen like that. And it doesn't happen like that. It's not a, a one, two, three. It's a business. And you said it best when you said, you know, it's a long-term vision. I never went into the Pesach business thinking that I was going to make money overnight. I walked into the Pesach business saying, I'm going to invest in a business and I'm going to build that business. And some years are going to be good and some years are going to be not so good. And it's okay because long-term, hopefully you make money. And that's ultimately what the goal of this is. And everybody who's coming on a program, at least a high-end program like my own, has a certain expectation, but also understands what it costs to do this. And all they want is, you know, if they're paying you a dollar, they want, you know, a product that equals up to something close to that dollar. They're all okay with you making some money, but they're not okay with being, you know, ripped off or, or, right. Yeah. Now this is a, a, a thing that I think about that, um, I feel like I'm able to have a good time when I'm on vacation or when I'm dedicating time to relax. A lot of people, this is not necessarily a Pesach uh, question, but a lot of people can go on vacation, they'll book the trip, they'll make, they'll travel down, they'll show up, and they can't relax or they can't have a good time or they can't stop thinking about you know, am I getting my, you know, my money's worth? I, I'm going to eat, you know, as much, uh, you know, filet as I can possibly, you know, and the guys who have to drink like you know, the most expensive bottle for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, just because they have to extract that last penny that they paid for the thing. How, in your opinion, in a business or personally, how can people teach themselves to have a good time? and relax. A better question for my wife who's a clinical psychologist than it is for me. <laughs> I just run a Pesach program. Um, you know, the I, I mean, my personal vision is, is life's too short. You know, you have to enjoy it. Enjoy what you have around you. If you can afford to take your family of 30 people away for Passover to a five-star hotel and, you know, live at in a luxurious way, which everybody's entitled to do with whatever they want with their money, you know, but if you can't enjoy that, um, I don't think you're enjoying anything in life. And I think you need to reevaluate, but I don't know if I can really help people with that. Like I said, you know, there are professionals out there who can, but I'm certainly not one of them. I can yeah, provide. Sounds like a lot of, yeah, that's for sure. There's a lot of gratitude and uh, and focusing on the uh, the context of, of the program. Yeah, no, it's it's a uh, it's amazing to see you know people who have the multi generational families and they all show up for for Passover in a room together and you know a fantastic spot. You really got to take a step back and and I think appreciate you know I think um, 
uh, on an individual level and also like, you know, on, on the level of the Jewish story in America, you know, the fact that, you know, people came here for the better part of a hundred years ago um, <laughs> as, as paupers. And uh, now, you know, the, the, the offspring of those you know, people who were fleeing for their lives with, with no assets and, and uh, whatever else to the point where um, this kind of a program can exist and not only exist, but um, so many programs and uh, so many people who are maxing out capacity of these programs. I mean, it's truly, um, it's, it's amazing. It's, ins- I mean, it's, it's inspiring. It's also kind of scary. I mean, it's, it's really unbelievable. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think that Every a lot time of gratitude- I sign an extension for another few years, I get very, very nervous because I'm committing to these, you know, very high end contracts and I'm wondering, are people going to keep coming back, you know, but there is that, you know, something about Passover. It's a, it's a, a unique holiday and that, there are lots of different people out there with lots of different religious beliefs and how they, you know, how they deal with the Jewish religion on their own and what their level of observance may be. But it's interesting that no matter whether you're an Orthodox Jew, a conservative Jew, a Reformed Jew, and I, I, I you know, come from a small town and know all of them quite well, um, you know, when it comes to Passover it seems that everybody's in. It's like there are Rosh Hashanah Jews, there are Yom Kippur Jews, and there are Passover Jews. They may not celebrate anything else, but for some reason, those three, that works for everybody. And Passover is the the third, you know, um, and people get very into it. You know, they were raised in it. They remember it, whether it's a Passover Seder or anything else. It was a time where the family got together and and really hung out together. And that's really what we're providing is a place for people to come and do that. Because not mo- most people do not have homes large enough for their extended family. And whereas they can afford it per se, where do you do something like that? And I think that's a big piece of what our business does. It brings families together and, uh, you know, in a beautiful way. Absolutely. Um, if you can share, I would love to hear what was one of the craziest things that has happened, maybe not on your own program in the course of your very long career doing this, but do you have any crazy stories, good or bad, that you could share that you experience in your Passover career? You know, I, I, it's funny when you you sent me this in advance so I could think about it, and I, I, I've given it a lot of thought. And uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, <laughs> we haven't really had any crazy experiences on our Passover program. You know, unless you want to include one of the waiters having a um, a massive heart attack in the back of the kitchen, and you know, our medical staff that we have on premises saving his life. That to me was a crazy experience, one that ended well. He's back at work, thank God. And um, I think if we weren't there, he probably wouldn't be here today. So that was a crazy experience. But overall, when it comes to Passover, there aren't many crazy experiences. I have a very, very interesting, you know, as you're aware, because you were on my program, my personality doesn't change very much on Passover. You know, when people are upset, or when people are happy, I pretty much stay flatline the whole time. I never get excited. I never yell. I never scream. It's just not how I operate. 
if Andrew Breskin doesn't like his box of matzah, then let's get him a different box of matzah. I got a thousand boxes of matzah. Let him pick through all thousand boxes of matzah as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. I don't want to take the matzah home with me after all. So, you know, when you're dealing with a team like mine and certainly a personality like mine and a hotel like the Waldorf Astoria, which is a high-end, high-service hotel, no matter what arises, there's nothing to get excited about. There are a million people there who, you know, I have an army behind me at the Waldorf Astoria. I can get anything done that you want done. Guests wants a desk in his room because he has a board meeting and he's the CEO of a company. Then we bring him a desk to his room and we set him up with a chairman's chair that makes him look like the person that he's supposed to look like. There's no task that we can't accomplish, especially when you have, you know, such an incredible support staff behind you. So I just look at things as, you know, I don't get excited, you know, God forbid, if somebody slips and falls, we help and we pick them up. That's all there is to it. I guess a better way of asking the question would be, um, can you think of any, um, and, and you mentioned about the desk, which doesn't sound crazy, but it just got me thinking, uh, any exotic or unusual request that you've received that um, you just went ahead and did it? Minimal ones, minimal ones. I had a gentleman who was, unfortunately, he was not well and um, he couldn't really sit in a chair. So um, we went out and we bought him a Lazy Boy from the Lazy Boy store down the block in Orlando. And we put a Lazy Boy in his private Seder room for him so he could be comfortable because he was, he was, you know, not well. And we wanted him to be happy. You try and go above and beyond in this business because, like I said, people are willing to spend a dollar, but they want the service for it. So whatever the number is that you're going to charge somebody, be ready to put out for them and be ready to be there for them in, no matter what the task is at hand. And that's sort of how I, that's how I operate. You know, it, it, keep it as tight as possible and then everything will be great. So nobody requested a... Uh, um a therapy giraffe to uh, accompany them on the program to make sure they had uh, whatever they need. Um, there are, there have been dogs, but no giraffes, you know, did you say giraffe? <laughs> yeah, I did say giraffe. Okay. I'm just making sure. <laughs> um, yeah, no, there are no, you know, one woman, uh, one woman once called me and said, she's a very, very large person. Can I get her a triple extra large robe? I said, Sure. So we did what you would do in that situation. We went on Amazon and we ordered a triple extra large robe and we had it at the hotel for her. I think it was way too big for her to be honest with you, but okay, whatever, you know, people have their, um, you know, people are very concerned. They want things a certain way. The moms are concerned about their daughters and grandchildren and they want the cribs to be in the right place and they want everything to be set for them so that when their kids walk in, Ultimately, like I said to you before, there's nothing that we can accomplish. So we just, you know, treat everybody as if whatever their request is, 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 is no problem. We'll take care of it. And if we can't do it, then you're open and honest with people and say, you know what? I just can't get that done. So that's really how, how it all rolls, at least for me. The problem that you brought up before in the crisis that come up where people are throwing food at each other or they're fighting in lines and, and they get into fist fights and things like that. You've seen on the Internet these ridiculous, you know, I think they're staged almost. I have never, ever had a situation like that 
in all of the years that I'm doing this. I did see a, I did see a video where some lady, she must have, like you said, either it was staged or she was unwell and like, you know, taking platters of food and chucking it across the room. Yeah. It's just, not real life. No, not it's real. stupid. I'm sorry. Not, not if real somebody life. acted like that on my program, you know, I would refund them and just ask them to leave. And I would come out of pocket on it. I don't care. Just you don't get to behave like that. If I don't behave like that, you don't get to behave like that. And ultimately, I do believe this, Andrew. I believe that no one wants to be that person. So if you act yeah. a certain way, they don't <laughs> I, want I would, to be yeah. the other way. They don't want to be that person. You know, it takes a – you got to get to a certain point to, to explode like that. I i don't think I'll ever do it, maybe with my wife and children, but that's about it. <laughs> so we uh, – I was fortunate to participate in a rather robust uh, uh, wine program, wine and spirits program. So let's um, just focus on wine. I know that you're um, you're a wine lover and uh, you're a wine collector as well. Um, uh, I'm not a collector. I'm a wannabe. <laughs> well, we can fix that. Yeah. Okay. But the the wine program itself, people love to drink wine on Passover. I think that um, – I think, and it's not just because <clears throat> there's not that many options in the spirits world, or for sure there's no beer. Um, <clears throat> there happens to be quite a bit of options in the spirits world, um, especially now tequila is so popular. Um, I think that a lot of people are um, moving to tequila for Passover almost exclusively. Um, a lot of people are moving to tequila over scotch and bourbon um, during the year as well. Um, and uh, wine. What's that? For caloric reasons, I think. It's all about the calories. You think so? I think that tequila is just, I mean, we're in the middle of this like tequila renaissance right now, especially yeah, in the Jewish like world. It's healthier, quote unquote. Is it? Is it healthier? Do people think that? I don't, don't know. I, I'm, I'm shooting from the hip. I don't know, but I think that, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's out of nowhere. I think that some people probably find a reason to say that it's, um, that it's healthier. You make a skinny margarita or something like that. You know, all of a sudden you feel like you're uh, having a protein shake or something, but <laughs> it's uh, the, I think that the, um, the, the holiday alcohol scene has definitely um, uh, been upgraded over the last, you know, at least the last five years, for sure the last, you know, quarter century, but more specifically, I think in the last five years, um, uh, the wine scene has gotten um, a lot bigger and the program we're doing um, mostly, if not all, Mavushal wine. So the wine that is, uh, you know, pasteurized or boiled. So it's uh, acceptable for everyone's religious standards. And people love it. People go through it and it's fantastic. I guess the question is how in, in the 20, 25 years that you've been doing this, how have the expectations with wine and spirits changed? And what have you done to kind of stay ahead of that in the wine scene? Well, I, I think over the last 25 years, and you'll correct me because this is really more your department than it is mine, wine has gotten much better. Yeah. I mean, and what's available in the kosher market has, you know, it's like a million times more than what it was when we started in this business. Uh, when I started, you know, 10 years ago, um, ultimately the reason I, I may do things differently than other programs. And I do focus much more as you are aware, cause you were there on my bars and, you know, wine and spirits as part of my program. 
it, it sort of stems back to the cruise concept. You know, when people are on vacation, they like to have a drink. They, you know, they like to sit around and have a glass of wine or have a cocktail, whatever their preference might be. They're on vacation. They're not going anywhere. There are no cars involved. They're not driving or moving heavy machinery, you know, and they're hanging out with their families. So a cocktail probably is a good idea. You know, it stops family fighting or maybe it actually increases <laughs> family fighting. I'm not sure what, but, um, you know, ultimately that's how I run my program. I am, you know, I'll just go back if and, and tell you a quick story. Um, I was working with a new caterer um, one year. And um, I said to him that my bars open at eight o'clock in the morning and they stay open all day and they close at one o'clock in the morning. And he looked at me and he said, you're out of your mind. And I said, okay, but it's my dime, right? So it's my call. I get to make the decisions when I'm paying the bill. And he said, absolutely. I said that my bars open at eight o'clock in the morning and they close at you know, one o'clock in the morning. And he said, okay. On day two, he came over to me and he said, I have to apologize to you. You're not out of your mind. You're a genius. <laughs> I've never seen people so happy in all my years doing this. And he'd been doing it for 25 years himself. Are people drinking more than they were 10, 25 years ago? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, my late father used to have scotch or he used to drink Canadian club, which I still think is gross, but, um, every week on Shabbos. So I, I, you know, I think that people when they're on vacation are a little bit more inclined to drink than maybe if they're going to work in the morning, with the exception of the great alcoholic who can handle going to work in the morning that way. Um, you know, I, I, I think people on vacation do like to relax and have a drink. Maybe you know, this is part of the, yeah, the the answer to the other question about how to get people to relax on vacation. Yeah, it probably is. You know, um, the, the the holiday of Passover obviously is defined by four cups of wine. You know, that's how we start this whole this whole party, right? We sit down at a seder and we drink four cups of wine. That's what the part of the whole celebration is. Um, you know, with regard to the wines that I serve versus what other programs may serve. I've never been on another program, so I can't answer what they serve. I can tell you that because I do like wine and because I think wine has evolved tremendously over the last many years, I think we're just better off serving better wine. People enjoy it more. Um, you know, I, I'm always baffled by the fact that when I go out to a restaurant, and maybe you can clarify this for me. You go out to a restaurant, a kosher restaurant, and you, you know, want to order a bottle of wine. And for some reason, they jack the price of that wine up insanely, like to a point where you're pained in spending that much money when you know that the bottle of wine only costs $40. You don't want to spend $140 on that bottle of wine. You just think it's crazy. Yeah. I, why, why they that, do that, I would yeah. always, I, I'm just of the opinion that if they didn't do that, they charge $60 or $70. They should, they should make money. I might order two or three bottles and I'll probably eat more and order more off the menu because when you drink, you eat. I don't understand um, that thing either. And I, for me, um, I will rarely order 
wine at a restaurant for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm, I don't, if it's by the glass, I don't know how long the bottle's been open for. And if it's a low volume wine restaurant, you'll pour you something that's stale and then you'll send it back or they'll open a fresh bottle. And then if it's a fresh bottle, then by the time it's, um, you know, aerated and, and it's breathing, (laughs) then, uh, it's time to pay the bill. So it's kind of like a no win situation with a, with a wine program at a kosher restaurant that doesn't have any intentionality, uh, behind it. I also am of the opinion, like you said, I think that, you know, selling a bottle of wine is a great move to entice someone to order more higher margin product. You know, if you want to have me drink a bottle of wine and that's going to be, and I'll, I'm drink, I ordered a bottle of wine. Um, I get appetizers and then I'm sitting there looking at the menu and I'm getting a little liquid courage after a glass of Cabernet in my belly. And it's, you know what, instead of getting the uh, burger, I'm going to spring for the, uh, you know, the, uh, the prime rib for two, you know, so you've already sure. made up that, you know, between a, a 25 or $28 burger in a steakhouse in Los Angeles or whatever, you know, and a $70 or $85 steak, you've made that money. And guess what? The guy's going to keep drinking too. And he's going to order dessert. Yeah. Another <laughs> bottle, you know, and, and, you know, then you want to order the mineral water instead of the tap water. And just like, but if you, you know, and, and be, another thing is that there's so few kosher wines and even fewer, I mean, relative to the market. And there's even fewer uh, kosher wines that are carried by restaurants that everyone knows what everything costs. You know, when you go to a, a non-kosher restaurant um, and you have a wine list, you'll pick something that you've never heard of before or you'll have the sommelier or whatever. And like <clears throat> there's less attachment between, you know, the fact that if you go to Target and you buy um, a stick of deodorant for $5 and you're in the hotel gift shop and you have the same stick of deodorant is $25, like you know that you have to spend the money because you need the thing and you can't get it anywhere else. But in the restaurant, like you can just say, okay, well, I know this is a $10 Cabernet. I'm not spending 40 bucks for it because it's just, it's just annoying, you know? So I right. think it is a, I think it's a big missed opportunity. Um, I also think that um, on the programs, having a, a better wine selection and more diverse wine selection is good because it keeps people like we said before, from sucking that last dollar out of every opportunity and having like, let's say the chalk hill or the cave for breakfast, just because you can, um, it's foolish. And when you introduce people to new options and other wines that are that are delicious and high quality, um, you know, you're you're showing people that hey, you know, you don't have to have this just because you recognize this is an expensive label. You can have this wine because it's appropriate wine for what we're having on the menu. It's an appropriate wine for um, this this meal or this occasion. And you know, we're just we're having like a. $40 a pound Chilean sea bass for dinner. You don't have to have <clears throat> Chalk Hill, <clears throat> excuse me. You don't have to have Chalk Hill Cabernet Sauvignon just because it's the most expensive thing on the menu. Use a little bit of education. Use, you know, try something new, experience something different. Sure. Have the wine that works and not the wine that you recognize. Um, and that's definitely, um, that's, I mean, that's you find something you love along the way. Exactly. And it just, you know, I, I think that a lot of wine pairing um, on and these opportunities is, is like fitting a, um, you know, square peg in a round hole because you're, you know, just you have to get something that works, not what you recognize. And, and um, I think that 
with the culinary program, it's an opportunity for people to try something new. And that should be complemented by the wine program and the, the beverage sure. program in general as well. Um, I agree. Super Plus, good. people are just in a better mood. Let's be honest. They're people are in a better mood. I think it's really important, you know, and, and especially, you know, you start off like the morning with a, you know, a nice little breakfast and a, uh, and a, what's it called? With a, uh, a shot of XO. That, that which is an <laughs> excellent opportunity and a great, uh, and a great suggestion. Or, um, we tried to make little coolers and little, you know, spritzers for, for during the week. But, um, you, know, you go outside, you get like an OJ with some, uh, with some Passover vodka or some tequila, or whatever, and just got to get into sure. the mood and, and chill out a little bit. Um, all right. Any closing thoughts about the magic of Passover and any, uh, any advice or any suggestions that you might want to share with anybody? As someone who runs a Passover program, if I were a guest, I think people should understand that we are there to provide them with a service, with a type, you know, with a program for them to be happy at, for them to do exactly what you said earlier on and find their happy place and enjoy the opportunity that they have and know that, you know, at least when I'm doing it, I'm doing it for, you know, obviously to make a living, but for the love of the game also, and to make people happy and keep families together. And um, I look forward to the opportunity to do it for many years, as long as we can do it well and we can do it correctly. We'll continue to do it that way. And um, I uh, appreciate the opportunity and I, and I appreciate you uh, spending time with me and listening to some of my nonsense. And um, now I look forward to many uh, Passovers in the future. Definitely a pleasure. I really appreciate your time and uh, sharing all the insight and your experience. And I think that I know that I'm better off for it and the audience as well. And look forward to uh, our next chat. All right. Great talk to you, Andrew. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram where you can be part of the Kosher Sommelier community. That's Kosher, S-O-M-M. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.